liberals are often pushed by socialists in more progressive directions because historically we have tended to progress when there was a healthy liberal establishment or a liberal center and a healthy left pushing the liberal center in a progressive direction. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. Well, I am recording these slightly downcast words quite briefly after the Senate has, on a largely partisan vote, acquitted Donald Trump in his impeachment trial. I was fearful from the very beginning that this would be the end of the trial. At a time when there was a lot of optimism that this would play out like the trial of Richard Nixon, in which the more we learned, the more people would turn against Trump. I argued all along that this was unlikely to happen. Richard Nixon was a hypocrite who showed the American people a face of respectability while actually associating with crooks and swearing in outrageous ways in the Oval Office. Donald Trump, in that sense at least, is not a hypocrite. He always showed Americans exactly who they were, and some of them seemed to like it, which is why I just could not imagine anything coming up in this trial that would shock his supporters. And that, unfortunately, turned out to be a prescient prediction. I do think, however, that we can now learn three lessons from the failed impeachment trial. And they are very important if we are to defend American democracy against the threat that Trump still poses. The first is, quite simply, that it is not enough to keep telling people that he's an asshole. I think a lot of his supporters know that he does things wrong, know that he breaks the rules, know that he is, to put it plainly, an asshole. But they think he's our asshole. He may be an asshole, but he stands up for our interests. We need to put more pressure on that idea, which is ultimately fraudulent. The second point I'd like to make is that we care about democracy for deep intrinsic reasons. We have a nonpartisan commitment to democracy. We have a commitment to democracy which hopefully overrides a lot of our day-to-day policy preferences. But even though we might value democracy as a good in itself for intrinsic reasons, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't take into account political considerations when we try to stand up to those people who are trying to destroy democracy. Standing up on a point of principle, if the only impact is to weaken the Constitution, to weaken the defenders of democracy, is not the right thing to do. So it is absolutely fine to have political strategic considerations that go into thinking about how to protect our institutions. And the third is that while I spend a lot of time, for good reason, talking about democratic institutions and the threat to them on this podcast, that isn't always the most effective argument to a wider public. We have seen again and again that the opponents of populists need not only to point out how dangerous they are to the democratic system, but also that they would do a better job in office, that they would deliver for citizens in a better, more wholehearted way than the current ruler. I hope these lessons will be useful as we enter on this decisive 
year of 2020 and that where the Senate failed to keep an authoritarian leader in check, the American people will ultimately succeed. Well, it's a real pleasure to introduce one of the most distinguished American writers and journalists and one of the nicest people I have met in Washington, D.C. or just about anywhere else in the world, E.J. Dion. E.J. has been on this podcast before in his early days, but I had him back to discuss and probe the argument he makes in a very interesting new book called Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. I agree with him that all of the opponents of authoritarian populism, especially authoritarian populism on the right, uh, need to unite. As you will see from the conversation, I'm not quite sure that the labels of moderate and progressive are quite helpful, or that we shouldn't just be advocating for what E.J. ultimately takes his uh, ideological position to be, namely social democracy in a more straightforward way as an independent tradition rather than a fusion of these two different streams. But for anybody who's trying to understand the lay of the land of the American political landscape at this juncture, and for anybody who wants to think about how to ensure that the American people do render a different judgment on Donald Trump than the senators did, this is a conversation you will not want to miss. EJ, welcome back to the podcast. It's so great to be on again. Thank you. I think you're only the second person who I'm having on for the second time, but that's because few people write books as fast and as brilliantly as you do. That is, as they say on Capitol Hill, a high honor and a distinct privilege. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, you're trying to think through at the moment what kind of political coalition it'll take for the left to win. And your new book is very much about the United States, but I think it has relevance beyond America as well. So I take it that the core of your argument is that progressives, as you call them, and moderates, as you call them, both have something quite distinctive to offer, and we need a kind of fusion of both of those. What are progressives and moderates, first of all? Right. Well, one of the things I try to be careful about at the beginning of the book is to say all terminology in this area is vexed and fundamentally easily challenged. The definition of progressive is clearer. I use the term progressive to refer broadly to people on the Democratic left, which would essentially be the Sanders movement, a significant part, though not all, of the movement that's gathered around Elizabeth Warren people who call themselves democratic socialists, but not just them, but broadly speaking, the left. Moderate is a more difficult term to use. As I note in the book, a lot of political scientists argue that it's thrown around in a very inexact way. Somebody can hold two extreme positions, one on the left and one on the right, and be called moderate because the average... Radical redistribution and, you know, getting rid of every immigrant in the country or something like that. And the arithmetic middle would look like you're moderate. Right. Middle of the rotors could be a wealthy person who is pro-choice on abortion and for tax cuts. And also in the middle would be someone who is against abortion and for higher taxes on the rich. They'd average out as moderate. They don't agree on anything. But I do think moderation is a disposition in part, which I praise. And I talk about some of the virtues of a moderate disposition, particularly after the Trump period. And I also think there are definable moderates, people who are more on the center left or occupy the middle of the road, people who might 
in an earlier time when it was still possible have been genuinely moderate or even liberal Republicans. There is a whole group of people who don't necessarily identify with democratic socialism, don't necessarily support Bernie Sanders, but nonetheless do believe in public, including government action to solve public problems. And one of the central arguments of the book is that in the United States in particular, though I agree with you, there are aspects of this argument that apply elsewhere. I appreciate your saying that, um, that people who uh, think of themselves as moderate cannot ally with the current form of American conservatism, because whether in its Trumpian form or in its radical market tax cutting form, it is not in any way moderate in its approach to government. So I have some in the weeds questions about what follows from these choices of how you define moderate and progressive. But before we get to that, why is it that moderates and progressives have to work together? And it seems to me, you know, John Rawls talks in his work about the difference between true agreement on something and a mere modus vivendi. And I have a feeling that you're arguing for a similar kind of distinction here. You're not just saying, hey, for the 2020 election, because of Trump, these very different traditions just have to broker a compromise, even for they're inimical to each other. That's the only way we can beat Trump. You are saying we need to do that to beat Trump, but you're saying, actually, both sides can in some ways become better versions of themselves, become stronger by recognizing the insight of the others. So why is this a match not made perhaps in heaven, but in a political reality that would improve uh, where we are? In a better place than purgatory. <laughs> yes, uh, the, it feels like we're in purgatory at the uh, moment, yeah, believe you me. Yeah, at least. First, I do think that the answer to the question, why should they work together, the two-word answer Donald Trump is for the moment sufficient. And I talk in the book explicitly about what I call the power of negative thinking, that often political movements arrive at what they believe after first defining what they are against. And no one was more of a master of that than Ronald Reagan. He was anti-Soviet, anti-tax, anti-government. And those three antis led to a whole conservative program. Similarly, I think that the left and moderates, progressives and moderates, are united in support of democracy in opposition to a government that plays fast and loose with authoritarians, that pursues policies that are fundamentally racist on immigration and domestically. And there are a whole list of things that they are in utter agreement on in being opposed to these particular aspects of Trumpism, which then leads to certain positive assertions about democracy, about the nature of the government we want in the United States. Having said that, you're right, I do go a step farther. In the first place, a modus vivendi is not always the worst thing in politics, that people need to form a coalitions. The very nature of a coalition is a union of people who don't necessarily agree on everything, but that they agree on enough to make political alliance worthwhile, in particular on what they can learn from each other. I argue that the left is right to argue that American politics, you could say this for a long time of Britain, you could say this elsewhere, that American politics was dominated for much too long by Reaganite ideas or Reagan-Thatcher ideas, or as some would say, neoliberal ideas, that that consensus was stifling to dissent. And that Democrats and people on the moderate left, including people I respect, like Clinton and Blair, made too many concessions to 
this Reaganite disposition. Now, I also argue that both the Clinton and Obama legacies deserve defense, but we can get to that. But the left is right that there was too much eagerness to give in to this consensus and that the left has done the whole democratic debate a favor by reopening space that had been closed off. I argue that moving immediately towards single payer is both a political and a policy mistake. But if Bernie Sanders and those allied with him had not put that squarely on the table, the entire healthcare debate would not have moved in a progressive direction. Now, suddenly, the moderate position is to support a public option. That was seen as a left-wing position, or at least a left position, when Barack Obama pushed for Obamacare. But moderates are right about some important things as well, to take health care again. The notion that our country will move easily from where we are to single payer is just not a believable notion. I think it wouldn't even be a good idea on policy grounds because the healthcare system is such a huge part of the economy that even if you want to get to single payer, and I can see a defense for that, it's going to take a lot longer than uh, three or four years. And moreover, as Ezra Klein has said, why do we only look to Britain or Canada for a model? Why don't we look to mixed systems that also cover everyone, like Australia or Germany or the Netherlands, a lot of other countries with very progressive healthcare systems? So moderates are right about that, but moderates are also right about the need for step-by-step politics, that fundamental reform often does not come in one big revolutionary burst, particularly in democracies. And the example I cite in the book is Social Security in our country, which began as a much more limited program than it became later. Indeed, there were some racist elements in the original Social Security because FDR had to get it past Southern committee chairs. So job categories held by African-Americans were largely excluded. But over a period of decades, Social Security broadened to include just about everyone. I think that is the nature of reform, step-by-step is not a sellout. Step-by-step does not mean losing vision. And so I go back in the book to the late Michael Harrington, who, by the way, was a democratic socialist, but also a very pragmatic political actor. And he invented a term I've always loved, visionary gradualism. And it's not an oxymoron that I think that uh, the left is right about the visionary part, that small-bore reforms that don't really get you anywhere are not necessarily easier to pass, and they often just get swept aside. You need large goals. But gradualism is also necessary because to move reform forward, you often have to take first steps that prove that it works. So I know in this time, particularly during Democratic primaries, when we are talking where every candidate has an interest in saying They are so much better than their opponents, and their opponents are deeply flawed. I get right now there's going to be a lot of contention. But I don't want that normal contention to lead to each side in this debate ruling the other out as an ally. I've always loved the line from Mark Shields, the great political commentator, that in politics as in religion, you can either spend your time hunting heretics or searching for converts. And I think this is a moment where the search for converts is an imperative. Well, I certainly agree with that last point. And I think a lot of what you've been saying sounds very plausible to me. I, I guess I still, I'm trying to grapple with 
how to take insights from each in a systematic way. Because this can't just be a matter of sort of splitting the difference on every single issue, right? Presumably, no, there I, are some I, issues I, on if which... If I can interrupt, I totally agree with that because I'm not trying to split differences here. Right. Um, I'm trying to assert very much that there are certain things that in its strong arguments, the left has right, and certain things in the strong versions of their argument, moderates have right. And so it is a matter And, and for of, you, this is not issue by issue, right? It's not like on this issue, the left is right, and on that issue, the moderates are right. It's more that on every issue, there is a way of looking at it that we should adopt from the left and a way of looking at it that we should adopt from moderates. Is that a way of putting it? I guess what I'm trying to say is, having read the book and, and having this conversation and for listeners to this podcast, having listened to us sort of go on about this for a while, how do we go away and apply that method when I'm trying to think through some new political issue? What does that mean for healthcare? What does that mean for tax reform? What does that mean for immigration. And I don't just mean sort of what particular policies do you favor, but how do I go to a new policy area and think as a, your last name is a lovely name, but it, it doesn't give itself easily to uh, be turned Dion into an adjective. Yeah, the Dionian. <laughs> yeah. If I want to have a Dionian approach to finding a meaningful merger between progressives and moderates, how do I do that? How do I look for what each side can offer in the context of a particular policy debate? Well, let me do what you probably should never do in a conversation like this, especially when you're trying to sell a book. Let me say how you might go at me, not you, but someone might go at me from both the left and the right simultaneously. And that would be to say something that is broadly true, which is that fundamentally my outlook is social democratic. And that if I feel myself to be part of a broad tradition, it is the broad social democratic tradition. What does that mean? That means that I believe the state has a major role to play in furthering economic justice, in regulating the market economy. Indeed, I think the state can play a positive role in building civil society and communities that are not part of the state itself. At the same time, I don't reject the market as a mechanism for organizing the economy that we've tried state socialism and it has not worked well. And I think people who are social democrats are people who feel themselves very much part of the tradition of the left, but also prioritize democracy and personal freedom over you know many other goals. So if you're on the left, you could argue that I am not willing to be systematic enough in my criticism of capitalism. I think I am pretty systematic in the book. I do identify with the left's worries about corporate dominance in American politics and elsewhere. And I don't think that free trade is a panacea as was preached in the 80s and 90s. So I am in that tradition. Nonetheless, as a social democrat, I acknowledge the limitations that have faced the left. For someone on the right, obviously, they would reject my politics because I am insufficiently pro-market. I'm too in favor of public action. Those are two legitimate criticisms so that the concord I am looking for between moderates who are really middle of the road to center left and progressives on the left, the coalition I would try to build in many countries, say, that have multi-party systems would be between the center and the left. And such coalitions exist rather successfully, for example, in Portugal at the moment. That's the coalition I'm trying to build. And what I would say to them is 
Fundamentally, you have more in common in your view of justice, your view of the role of state action, your view of the rights of uh, workers in the economy. You overlap a lot more than you want to know at times, and that's what you must realize at this very dangerous moment. So to me, that helps a lot, but it does reactivate some of the inchoate concern I felt about these labels of progressive and moderate. So when you're saying, I'm a social democrat, and I think there's a coherence to social democracy. Now, there's a real question about how social democracy can be relevant in this moment, especially as social democratic parties, for various reasons, are struggling mightily across Europe. Could I just say, my friend Jim Kloppenberg, the great historian, and I taught a class this semester up at Harvard called The Crisis of Social Democracy. So you are quite right. There is a lot to grapple with at this moment. Yeah, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on what the sources and the possible solutions for crisis of social democracy might be. But to me, that is a coherent political philosophy that despite my deep desperation about the state of many social democratic parties, and frankly, sometimes my growing disaffection with those parties. I used to be a member of a German social democratic party and I left for a variety of reasons because I don't think that the party is a very effective advocate for the social democratic tradition today. That speaks to me because social democrats believe that the free market is a very important institution, but that we need very robust welfare states and a robust form of redistribution in order to make sure that its benefits are widely spread. They believe in, at least in most countries, in the values of liberal democracy and the importance of a liberal international order. And as a result, they are much quicker to criticize certainly far-right authoritarian regimes, but also far-left authoritarian regimes than what you might call progressives. And so I'm sort of, you know, in a way, I'm a natural audience for this because I don't see myself as a moderate in US politics. I'm a liberal within American political terminology. I don't think that the right approach is to split the difference between where Democrats are at the moment and Republicans are at the moment, I think. Right, which, as you know, is something I argue very much against in the book. I argue that the traditional talk of bipartisanship does not work as long as we have a Republican Party this radical in its concerns. And so I agree with that, but it does make me sort of feel like, okay, so I'm not a moderate in those terms, and I'm not a progressive, because I do worry, and we can talk a little bit about that over the course of a conversation, that progressives in the United States are less and less willing to acknowledge the important role that the market needs to play, are far too willing to excuse left-wing authoritarian regimes in countries like Venezuela, and, and have a rather different vision of uh, where we want to get to as a country across issues of identity and so on. That's another topic that I want to raise in a little bit. So I guess the question is, other than trying to reach a broad American audience, why is this book not called why we need a social democratic tradition in the United States? Isn't there a more direct route to some of the insights and some of the basic outlook and some of the basic inclinations that this book is advocating for, which is much more easily understood as coming out of this coherent tradition of social democracy than as a weird fusion of two ideological traditions, neither of which personally I, and I think neither of which you actually have a real commitment to. Two things. One is, I want to just talk about the virtues of moderation, the reason why I do not see this as a bad word. Sometimes I joke that I am intellectually left but temperamentally moderate. And Aurelian Kriyutu, whose politics are, I think, more conservative than mine, nonetheless has a wonderful collection of virtues and moderation that it 
promote social and political pluralism, a propensity to seek conciliation and find balance. Moderates recognize that most political and social issues often involve tough trade-offs and significant opportunity costs. I would add Isaiah Berlin's agonistic choices to that require small-scale adjustments and gradual steps. And also, boy, do we need this in the age of Trump, self-restraint and humility. I think moderation representing those kind of virtues is really a necessary component to democracy because democracy does require a certain humility and, as Dan Ziblatt and Steve Levitsky said, a certain amount of forbearance on the part of all of us. So that's why I don't want to throw away the word moderate or rule moderates out of this proposal I'm making. But just, just to push you on that point, I think that all of those values are very important. And I'm willing to call myself a moderate. But I wonder whether, you know, that is rightly understood as a placement along some kind of ideological spectrum. It seems to me that in that sense, there are people who are quite deeply conservative, like a John McCain, or people who are quite deeply liberal or progressive or left wing or whatever you want to use as a term, like Billy Brunt, or I would argue Barack Obama, uh, who very much have this moderate disposition. So it just strikes me that in the sense in which you're using moderation, that is an important set of virtue, and I wish that everybody had it, at least to some extent, for the maybe too much of a good thing sometimes, but it's certainly a very important right, virtue. You know that old line, a liberal is someone who can't even take his own side in a debate, which exactly. is the problem. That's, what I'm doing that's not the right moderation now. I am recommending. But, but it seems to me that, you know, I would aspire to a political system in which you have some people who are uh, deeply conservative, because there's a lot of people out there in this country who are deeply conservative, and they deserve some kind of real representation, and some people who are far to the left from me, but both of them have some of those virtues of moderation. So it's not clear to me that moderation, in the sense you're talking about it, has a natural home in the political center, rather than being open to all political actors. Well, it is possible for people of many ideologies, not all ideologies, but many ideologies, to display some of the virtues that I ascribe to moderation. But think about two things I want to say in response to your question. The first is, I do think that there are situations that we can look at historically and fairly recently where people who were in some particular moderate or center position were broadly allied with social justice. I think of, for example, the left wing of many Christian democratic parties. I think of the welfare state in Europe, for example, being a great creation, not just of social democrats, but also of Christian democrats, often operating out of a tradition of Catholic social thought that I very much identify with. You can see parties in certain kinds of middle of the road parties in Scandinavia and France, uh, historically in Britain as well, uh, you know, Macmillan Tories actually helped build the welfare state in Britain as well. So you have, I think, definable forms of moderation that are broadly identified with the progress that people to their left were trying to push forward. Butskillism in Britain, for those who really want to get into British history. And, you know, it's true, I will confess, I'm an admirer of the late Anthony Crosland, and he was pushing a kind of politics like that. In the American context, I have always been quite open about seeing myself in broadly social democratic terms. It's not a term that is widely used here. To me, 
the New Deal and New Deal liberalism inserted, and the phrase is Richard Hofstadter's, gave American politics a social democratic tinge. And I think what you've seen in the United States historically is when we made progress along broadly social democratic lines, we tended to call it liberalism or labor liberalism. And it was usually achieved by an alliance between moderate liberals and the left. I um, quote the political scientist called Mason Williams in the book, if I may just read a couple of sentences of him. I have a chapter in the book called Are the Socialists Coming? There are many democratic socialists I've admired in my life, but it argues that the rise of democratic socialism in recent years is really a backlash against the overwhelming control of the Reagan consensus on our politics. But I argue that historically, American socialists have had a real impact on the liberal center. The New Deal was not socialist, Mason Williams wrote, but to end the story there is to miss the role of socialists in crafting the intellectual world within which the New Deal unfolded. Look not at what socialism was, but at what socialism did. And he says a few other things, and he says, the example of the New Deal might serve as a reminder of the value that liberalism can draw from schools of social and political thought that cast a more critical eye on American capitalism and the political practices bound up with it. I'm saying, yes, that liberals, in our terms, often need the critique of socialists, are often pushed by socialists in more progressive directions. And that's why this book is talking about this interaction, because historically we have tended to progress when there was a healthy liberal establishment or a liberal center and a healthy left in the 30s. It was particularly alive in the trade union movement, pushing the liberal center in a progressive direction. That's why I have sympathy for both. So I think that's a really helpful explanation of why you resist just saying, hey, this is actually the social democratic book and that's a sort of easier way for the morass. Let's look a little bit at a few different policy areas or a few different debates that you cover in your thinking to learn more about what it might look like in practice. So one big question is the economy, right? If you end up having a kind of smart compromise between moderates and progressives, on economic reform, what kind of principles should animate that? And how would that economy look different from the economy we have today? You know, there are certain ideas you run across that lodge in your head and influence the way you think about a lot of things, even when you don't realize it. Mm -hmm. For me, one of those ideas is John Kenneth Galbraith's notion of countervailing power. And it seems to me what characterizes a left of center, broadly speaking, view of the economic system, of the capitalist system, um, is that we need to worry about concentrations of state power, of course, but we also need to worry about concentrations of economic power. And obviously, this isn't just Galbraith, it's Louis Brandeis, it's a lot of other people in the American tradition. Therefore, your view of the economy, and here is where I have quite a bit of sympathy for the left, is not simply about does capitalism deliver the goods, which it, these days it's not delivering the goods for a significant chunk of our society, but it's not just does capitalism deliver the goods, it is what effect does capitalism have on democracy itself? How is power distributed in our society? And so how would the left and moderates find a modus vivendi that is a principled uh, modus vivendi. 
I think a whole series of reforms of the political system are necessary, both in response to the alienation that was exhibited by the rise of Trump, but also because of the increasing dominance of money in our politics. I think it's a good thing that this new Democratic majority introduced H.R. 1, a long list of political reforms that included reforming the money system as part of their program. It also should include, obviously, expanding voting rights. I don't press it hard in the book, but I am working on a project with my colleague, uh, Miles Rappaport, on compulsory attendance at the polls, what I call universal voting, what others would call compulsory voting along the lines of Australia, because I want to rip down all the barriers that are being built to voting in the United States. So there are a whole series of reforms in that area. So I agree with the importance of political reform. And that seems to me actually one of the areas where there isn't that much tension between moderates and progressives. I feel like, uh, you know, there's differences of emphases and so on, but there is actually quite a lot of similarity on what a Joe Biden and what a Bernie Sanders want to change about how American elections are financed and run and so on for maybe understating the amount of difference here. So you're welcome to respond to that. But I do also want to push you to, how does the role of the market change in our society? How does the taxation system change? How does worker power change? What is the actual changes of the economy that bear the mark both of what you call moderate and what you call progressive thinking in a way that we wouldn't get it if we weren't thinking about the previous two traditions? So let me use three obvious examples. You might say, although it's a very pretentious way to put it, that in a way, this book is about dialectics. It's about sort of proposals, reactions, and then counter-reactions, and how do these produce better politics. I praise Elizabeth Warren for raising a wealth tax as part of her campaign. I think that the concentration of wealth has reached a crisis point in our society. Moreover, if you simply want to finance the steps that government must take, you can't simply do it on the backs of middle-class people, let alone working-class people, or certainly the poor. Now, her particular way of doing the wealth tax has come under all kinds of criticism. Some have said a question whether it's constitutional. There's a lot of talk about how wealthy people especially could game the system and escape it. There are a whole lot of substantive critiques to be made. But she is absolutely right to put that on the table. And guess what happened? When she put that on the table, a new moderate position developed. People started talking about, well, let's raise the capital gains tax. Let's perhaps have a financial transactions tax. Let's increase estate taxes. Suddenly, positions that were seen as left were seen as representing a new form of moderation. That is a sort of point-counterpoint debate that I think has moved us in a progressive direction. Second example, we've already talked about it, is single-payer health care. I argue very strongly in the book that a legitimate litmus test in American politics is that everyone in the country must have good, affordable health coverage. The way we get there should not be a litmus test. But suddenly, because Bernie Sanders put this on the table and then others followed, the public option and rather very substantial reforms to health system are now seen as moderate. Joe Biden's health plan, which is more moderate than single payer, is well to the left of where Obamacare was. That's the second example. The third example is... For, for, I mean, I don't know how you would classify Barack Obama in this. I see him as a, a rather moderate sort of liberal, in fact. Right. So you think he's more on the side of the moderates than the progressives. But Barack Obama wanted a public option. 
He just wasn't able to pass it because of a couple of Democrats in deeply Republican territory who blocked it because they were worried about their re-election. But, but, but I think to say that the public option was clearly a leftist position in 2008 when a president who you describe as more moderate and progressive was pushing it seems to me a little bit misleading. No, because if you go back to that debate, the left argued all along that Obama should have made the public option more a central part of his argument from the beginning. In other words, there is more subtle difference between where Obama was. Obama signaled quite clearly, I can live without the public option, for example. It was partly a negotiating position he took that the left was quite critical of. And the left of that time would have been quite happy to get a public option. But single-payer health care wasn't even part of But, but now that this is debate, not an argument that, about sort of a public option has only become a viable possibility because of single-payer health care or anything like that. It's more debate about, you know, how hard did Obama push for it? And could Obama and the Democratic White House have gotten more if they'd pushed for more things? Now, perhaps, uh, you know, those debates around exactly the details of what happened in 08 and 09, a time when I was very new to this country and didn't really understand all these details. And you were, of course, covering them with greater students better than I do. But that seems to me a more subtle debate that's always going to happen between whoever is in office and whoever is outside of office. Between, you know, couldn't you have pushed a little bit harder? And if you had pushed a little bit harder, might you not have gotten more? And, and that may be true, it may be untrue. It's hard for me to judge. Well, I, I, but it doesn't seem like this sort of principled debate where public options just wasn't thinkable for moderates because they thought that's a crazy left position and now they've come to embrace it. It was, I mean, you have to, I don't want to get hung up on this with you. I think it was seen as well to the left of where it is today. And I think opening space in the debate was very important to its now being in the mainstream. One of the points I make parenthetically, and I should probably just get this into the conversation and we can get back to it. I have a long chapter on the election of 2018 uh, because I think it really is a model for how you build the coalition that I have in mind. And we say correctly that many of the Democrats who took seats away from the Republicans are moderate. I think it's very important to look at them and realize they are well to the left as moderates of where old blue dog Democrats, as we used to call them, or other parts of the Democratic Party were before, that I think progressives need to recognize that today's moderates are far more progressive in the positions they take than those who are called moderate, say, in the Clinton era. There has been a general move in a leftward direction among moderate Democrats. But the third example, and here, this is trickier, but I speak a lot about the idea of dignity, the dignity of work, and I think dignity has to be a central economic idea. Gene Sperling, actually, who my quote in the book, former aide to Clinton and Obama, is writing a book about it. And here is where people on the left and far left make an argument that I think people closer to the middle have to take seriously, which is how do you guarantee worker voice and some worker influence within the economic system? You know, Elizabeth Warren, to take her again, is said to be terribly radical for proposing to put workers on company boards. Germany has had this forever. Yeah, it's a social democratic policy that Willy Brandt passed in um, the early 1970s under the great slogan, Mehr Demokratie wagen, which is Dare More Democracy. Right. Um, the, the, the detractors of Gerhard Schröder later said that he had gone from the SPD arguing for Mehr Demokratie wagen 
to mehr Luxuswagen, which means they're more luxury, but also have more luxury cars, which uh, yeah, Twitter was rather fond of. Lastly, obviously, we need a whole series of measures, both in the area of uh, post-secondary education, including access to university, but also access to training or one or two years of university to get better jobs. And I am quite critical of the way in which those of us who support these things talk about them. I think Trump was brilliant. I hate to say those words together, but was brilliant in capturing how a working person age 48 who thought he made a deal, and it was usually a he, made a deal with the economy that if I work hard, I'll get a decent blue collar wage, be able to retire, maybe have a little fishing cabin. And that person got sort of swept aside by economic change. When Trump said, I'll bring back your blue-collar jobs, I'll bring back your mining jobs, I have a suspicion a lot of those folks did not fully believe him. Uh, What they heard was, he gets how I feel. When people with college educations like me come along and say, aha, we'll retrain you, don't have to worry about this, I think that person might look at us and say, A, you're not willing to acknowledge how the deal with me was broken, but B, what you're really telling me is you want me to be just like you. And I think that's a kind of resentment that we should understand. That's why in the book, I quote Richard Cordray, who ran unsuccessfully as a Democrat for governor of Ohio, but he had a line that I think we need to think about a lot. He said, you shouldn't have to go to college to join the middle class. And it was a case for training, but it was a case for training that inverted the kind of class elitism and said, no, this is identifying with your situation. And what we are about is respecting you where you are. And we've got to deal with the fact that this economy is not the same economy that we had 40 years ago, no matter how much we mourn that fact. Funnily enough, I feel that this is the closest you've come so far to actually making a progressive socialist argument, which is, in my mind, rooted back to a paper by the great uh, late Jerry Cohen, who thought about the structure of proletarian and freedom. I'm not quite sure about the economic assumptions in the paper, uh, retrospectively, but the basic idea is it's not collective freedom to leave the proletariat if each of us can do it, right? Each of us can go off to university and uh, do relatively well and so on. But if it's just a few of us who can do it, not all of us collectively, then the proletariat is still unfree. That is the basic structure of the argument. And, and there's something sort of similar here for with a slightly more cultural valence, that too often we do go to communities who good, for good reason feel like the deal has been broken. We say, just become like us, become good, nice urban liberals with university degrees and your future will be bright. And they say, well, no, that's not actually what I want. I think the other interesting thing, what you were saying is about the role of policy in a political campaign, which has to be double, I think. I think it needs to be to be serious, have a real promise of how you would in fact change your world. And that needs to be realistic because if you're just lying, then you're going to go into office and you're not actually going to be able to carry out on your promise. But, and this is the bit that Trump did unfortunately get brilliantly right, what's even more important to win an election is that the policy communicates who you're for, sometimes who you're against, and how you see the world. And I think Democrats and left-wing parties in general, left-of-center parties in general, can often fail to do that. When they talk about policy, they don't see the need to, to make it tell a grand narrative about what's wrong with a 
present moment and how to fix it. That's actually something where I think moderates can genuinely learn from progressives, by the way. You do some very interesting thinking around what, for lack of a better term, we're calling identity politics, though it's not a particularly helpful term, as you point out. What is the common area of agreement that, that progressive moderates can come to in the area of the politics of recognition? Uh, let me say two things. One is, I have chapters in the book where I don't try to hammer every single argument I make in the book into these two moderate and progressive molds. And indeed, in this chapter, I make a point of saying that there are people on each side of the moderate and progressive side who may not sort of fall neatly into absolutely similar boxes on so-called identity politics, that there are people on the left who are uneasy with a politics of race, gender, sexual identity, because it's not class politics. Right. And there are plenty of people who are moderate who are actually very, quotes, liberal on matters involving identity. So I Yeah, identity politics, in, in, in a broad sense, it seems to me to be a, a two-by-two, where there are people who are sort of deeply supportive, uh, again, whatever we mean by identity politics, deeply supportive of identity politics and sort of want a kind of socialist politics. But there's also people who are moderate on both. And then there's people in the third and fourth quadrant as well, which is to say there are some sort of more traditional Marxists who think we should be socialists, but it's all about class politics and we should be de-emphasize matters of identity. And then there's, uh, you know, what you might call a sort of more neoliberal identity politics, which is people who are quite moderate on the economy, but you do think that everything is about race and perhaps particularly gender. So it does seem to me like here we're talking with sort of four different Correct. So in a way here, the concord I'm looking for is related to the other, but different, which is uh, a concord between those who would privilege class and those who would privilege other forms of identity. I'm critical of the term identity politics because it was largely invented by critics of uh, movements to stand up for the rights of African-Americans, women, Latinos. LGBTQ people, and at times, I think, for, say, an African-American, a critic of identity politics is someone who wants to make politics safe for uh, affluent white men again. I, I get that suspicion of the term identity politics. Nonetheless, I think identity itself is a real factor in politics that we have to acknowledge. In that chapter, I have an analysis of Trump's election where I argue that there are two forms of denial. One form of denial is to say that Trump's election had absolutely nothing to do with race and racism. And of course, that is wrong. And there are a lot of very good studies that show how many votes Trump got from people who were, to be very charitable, racially sensitive, whites who were racially sensitive to be less charitable. Some of them were actually racist or came close to being racist. There's no question that issues of identity, race, and immigration were vital to Trump's election. However, you cannot say that that's the end of the story. And this sort of draws on work that I did for the book with uh, Tom Mann and Norm Ornstein. If you look at Trump's election, not through opinion surveys, but by geography, what you find is that Trump did exceptionally well in the places in the United States that were being hammered economically, particularly white people were being hammered economically, not unlike 
places in northern England that voted uh, for Brexit, not unlike places in industrial areas in northern France that voted uh, for Le Pen. And so you have to acknowledge that, yes, there is a racial element in Trump's victory, but there is a piece of it. The racial feeling was aggravated by economic discontent. That's point one. Point two is that we have to acknowledge that social justice demands both a politics of identity and politics of class or a politics Nancy Fraser. Um, Nancy Fraser talks about a politics of recognition and a politics of redistribution, that we have to figure out a politics that brings those together, because there is simply no doubt that class remedies alone, dealing with class inequality alone, will not right the sorts of discrimination African-Americans face in the country. Whether you are rich or poor, you are probably more likely to be stopped by a cop if you are African-American just to take the simplest possible example. On the other hand, we cannot allow a focus on that to take our eyes off the other prize, which is a greater equality of economic opportunity. You know, there are two stories from our history that I emphasize. The March on Washington for Civil Rights, where Martin Luther King gave the famous I Have a Dream speech, That was called the March for Jobs and Freedom. Right at the beginning of the civil rights movement, there was recognition that greater economic justice was intimately connected to the hope for greater racial justice. That whole march was financed very heavily by the United Auto Workers Union. And so I think we need to try to find a politics that keeps these two things straight, knowing that these are immensely sensitive and difficult areas and that you will always risk sounding to one side like you are ignoring their particular concern. If you're a white working class, you may face criticism from someone who's white working class saying you're not looking for out for our interests enough. And you could easily face criticism from an African-American saying you're not looking out for our interests enough. Sometimes maybe they both be right, but we have to figure out how to bring these two together. And that's what that chapter is about. So again, I agree with a lot of what you just said. I'm still not quite convinced that this division into moderates and progressives, which then takes a form in this context of, you know, do we want more or less identity politics uh, or more or less of parties of recognition, helps to get to the bottom of the issues. In my mind, it is not a matter of looking out for the interests of ethnic and religious minorities who are under threat from the Trump administration, for example, or looking out for workers who can't make the rent. I think that we should be doing both, and I don't think there's any particular tension between those two projects. Where I do see a real division, and I'm not sure that that's progressive versus moderate, but it is, I think, quite central to our contemporary politics in the United States, is in how you talk about identity and how you talk about the America that we are trying to achieve. And what I take some of the critics of identity politics to be doing is to say, you know, There is a way of presenting the Democratic Party, which is as a coalition of interest groups. Trump and the Republicans are the party of white people, and now we are the party of people of color and women and sexual minorities and so on. And we're fighting for them because that's the people who are standing for, right? And I think that that's a mistake. It's both a strategic mistake, because I don't actually think that we're going to win elections that way in the long run. But it's also a mistake about 
the basis how we talk about America. And somebody who perhaps is a moderate in your book, like Barack Obama, I think did talk about those issues, certainly did not say, I don't care about uh, the fate of African-Americans or Latinos or sexual minorities in this country. But he would talk about it in terms of a kind of country that all of us as American citizens want to construct. So he absolutely called out the injustice, for example, of a lack of same-sex marriage, which was still in the books at the time. But he thought of it uh, by not saying, I'm going to stand up for gay people in this country. He would say, what kind of country do we want to be? Do you want to be a country in which everybody can get married if they want to make a commitment to each other and they're in love with each other? Or do we want to be a country in which we arbitrarily exclude some people from that? So for me, it isn't a question of more or less parties of recognition. It isn't a question of, do we want to go all out in that? Or do we want to sacrifice some of that in order to win over the right voters in the Midwest or anything like that? It's a fundamental question of how do we think about the America we want to construct? And that, to me, isn't quite captured by language of either moderates versus progressives or even sort of politics of class versus politics of recognition. I want both. Where I get uncomfortable is if people have a part of recognition that sounds like we're just going to fight for this group and you fight for that group. And, you know, 30 years from now, we'll still have an America that's deeply polarized in its political system by race. And, you know, the Republicans will just be the party of whites and Democrats will be party of minorities. And that's somehow supposed to be the future we're aiming towards. A couple of things. One of my very favorite words in the American Constitution is the very first word of the American Constitution. It we. is we. It says, we the people. And this nation, from its inception, has been struggling to make that we more inclusive over the generations. Martin Luther King said famously, referring to the earliest American documents, the Declaration and the Constitution, that for the African-American community, they were a promissory note that came back stamped unpaid insufficient funds, which I, is one of my favorite lines in that speech. There are particular struggles that will always happen around race and racial equality that will be inconvenient for the builders of this or that coalition because there are forms of discrimination against African-Americans that have endured since 1619, to use that now, that date that has now been focused on far more, and I think legitimately so. You can deeply believe in the importance of that project, in the importance of the project that King was describing, both in the very inclusive I Have a Dream speech and in some of the angrier speeches against injustice that he also made in the course of his career, his letter from Birmingham jail, which chastised moderates who said, why can't you wait? You can believe that this is a deeply important project that will sometimes make the life of coalition builders and white politicians difficult and complicated without giving up on the inclusive we. One of my favorite words is empathy. And I've said many times that if I did a baseball hat, it would say, make America empathetic again. And what I'm looking for is a politics of we that is willing to accept the radical nature of exclusion felt by African-Americans and Latinos in many cases from their legitimate rights and respect. But I also think it is possible to feel empathy for the radical sense of exclusion 
by those left behind economically who happen to be white and live in Appalachia or, or in old mill towns, like the one, by the way, that I grew up in. And that some say, the, those of us who remember Robert F. Kennedy are a little romantic about it, and perhaps we are. But one of the reasons that he has always been a hero of mine is because for a brief moment during that 1968 campaign of his, African-Americans and white working people both felt that he understood the injustices that they confronted. And that was at a time when these groups were very much at odds, not unlike now, in some ways maybe worse than now. And it's that sort of empathy that I am yearning for. And the reason I think Nancy Fraser's ideas are valuable is because I think they are, if you will, paving stones for the road toward that empathy. It strikes me that 2008 is another moment where that was to some extent true. Right. Uh, Obama's Selma speech is one of my favorite speeches he ever gave. And I think one of the most important presidential speeches we have ever heard. And there is a real debate to be had about the American story. It was it so drenched in racism from the beginning that it is at some level an irredeemable story or is the American story a story of slow progress, often with setbacks, for example, Reconstruction followed by Jim Crow, but steady steps forward? The Selma speech is almost a philosophy of history speech, and it basically tells the American story as a story of our capacity for self-improvement. I very much identify with that story. But I fully understand why that's a hard story for some people to identify with as much as I do, or for that matter, as much as Barack Obama does. I side with Obama on this question, but it takes a lot of political work, constant, steady work to make that story credible. Finally, what does all of this mean for how the eventual nominee of a Democratic Party should run against Donald Trump? We are recording this in the middle of the primaries. Who knows if it's going to be Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden or Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg or Mike Bloomberg or somebody else. But what are the couple of main lessons you think they should take from this book in terms of how they frame their appeal to the American people to ensure that Donald Trump is in fact thrown out of office? I think there are several elements, many of which were present in the campaigns that Democrats for Congress in 2018 ran. And I point to 2018 because different kinds of people were elected in 2018. Most of the swing districts were won by people like Abigail Spanberger, who took a Tea Party district in Virginia. I spent some time with her in the book. Some of the newly elected people who won primaries were people like AOC or Ayanna Presley, whom I spent time with in the book. And key to that election was a combination of mobilization and persuasion. And that I have always argued that just using them as examples, that it was very important for both Spanberger and Presley to realize they needed each other. They needed each other's constituencies. They needed each other's, uh, that Spanberger needed the energy provided by people who are probably more to her left in her district. But Presley, in order to exercise real power in Congress, needed people like Spanberger to be able to win in seats like that. So first, this is a kind of pre-strategy question. I think a strategic realization that 
each of these constituencies have to find ways of working together and very different kinds of people have to find ways of working together is the first step toward getting to a strategy. I think that there is a very substantial body of Americans who need to be mobilized, who already know that Trump has violated basic norms. I think the impeachment hearing showed and the, the argument before the Senate showed that he didn't just violate norms, he violated the law, he violated any reasonable understanding of how presidential power should be exercised in the Senate by letting him off the hook showed that he will pretty well be able to do anything he wants. I think a very large number of Americans already feel that very strongly. For this group of Americans, mobilization is central. But all campaigns are about both mobilization and persuasion. And the issue in any given race is to figure out where does the balance lie. A lot of this campaign will be about mobilization. But given our electoral college, which I would get rid of if I could, but I can't at the moment, persuasion will be vital in states, notably Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Arizona, some other states as well, but those in particular. And here is where I think a constant case must be made about the ways in which Trump has not served the interest of that swing constituency he claimed to represent that the lives of the working people he talked about in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin have not improved substantially. The irony of growth under Trump is that there is far more growth in the states that voted against him than in the states that voted for him. I think that must be central. I think, to go back to the theme we were talking about earlier, a politician who both wants to win and wants to bring the country back together needs to find a way to say that when it comes to the economics of place, the economics of regional inequality, which I think must become a central part of progressive economics, the inner city and many of the old predominantly white mill towns have suffered from some of the same economic forces. William Julius Wilson, the great sociologist up at Harvard, wrote a book called When Work Disappears. He was talking about the impact of deindustrialization on the inner city. What we've seen since, that was a warning sign for other communities that were predominantly white who are suffering from the very same forces. I want a Democratic nominee to make it her or his business to make an argument that these two groups have far more in common than they realize. They have conflicting interests. There are differences. You don't gloss those over. But we have to bring ourselves back together. And I think that focusing on this shared problem is part of the path toward bringing us together. And lastly, again, I talk about dignity a lot in the book. I think dignity has a double effect. Clearly, dignity is something people look for in a president. And dignity is in leadership is something a democracy needs. And Trump, whatever he has, he does not have dignity in the way that Americans see it but also a Democratic nominee, a broadly speaking progressive, must be talking about the dignity of every single person in this society. And that's the dignity of the refugee and African-Americans and immigrants who are simply coming here to seek opportunity. It's also the dignity of LGBTQ people. It's the dignity of white working people who are on the wrong end of the economy. This has to be a country that honors the dignity of everyone. Sherrod Brown, a Democratic politician from Ohio, has 
spoken about this particularly eloquently. Robert Kennedy spoke about this with great eloquence. I think let dignity reign in this country again is not a good slogan, but what underlies that is, I think, an idea that a lot of Americans could identify with. That seems very powerful to me, saying that the Democrats' political promise is to ensure that every American, whoever they are, gets to lead a dignified life. That seems to me very powerful. Uh, EJ, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It is always fun to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.